This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Good morning. So good to see you um, in God's house this morning. We're going to be, I'll give you a minute so you can turn there. We're going to be, uh, when we get there, in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, as we continue our, uh, our survey through the book of Acts this summer in eight weeks. Um, if you've got uh, the LNBC app, you can open that, go to the sermon notes tab, and the notes from this morning will be in there as well as some links for you. So uh, feel free to do that. It may take just a minute to open up, but they um, are there. On Friday, as I imagine all of you know, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States overturned uh, Roe versus Wade. That is the best thing that the Supreme Court has done in my lifetime. Um, it's hard to describe the destruction, the death, and the injustice that we have walked in over the last 50 years as a nation. Now, what Roe did and didn't do, just quickly, um, Roe did not ban abortion, right? What Roe did was send it down to the states and say, once finally challenged, this was a poorly written law in the first place, and this was never a constitutional right. I remember as a criminal justice major and pre-law minor in 1997, studying Supreme Court cases, even then, looking at that case and being taught of its fragility and the fact that it was um, passed on very shaky grounds and if it were to uh, ever make it to a challenge would likely fall. I never thought I would see that in my lifetime, but I, along with believers across our nation, gave thanks to God uh, Friday for that. Uh, about 50% of our states that will make a big difference in as um, different levels of restrictions are imposed on abortions. Uh, about 50% of the states so far at least it's not going to make much difference in. Um, they're going to have abortion uh, largely on demand uh, through later trimesters. But I, I want us to remember that Roe versus Wade for us as followers of Jesus, for us whose worldviews and ethics are shaped by the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ, by the Word of God, not by culture or political affiliation, that, that the overturning of Roe versus Wade was not the finish line. It was the starting line of a new era of increased ministry and more focused attention to unmarried mothers, to children born into situations where they are not wanted or cannot be cared for. It's going to be interesting to see if the church can stand up to the mouth that we've lived with for the last decades. We've been great at protesting and advocating. We have not been so great at opening our wallets and our homes and our hearts and our arms and our churches to women walking through unexpected pregnancies to children, to children in the foster system of our states. We've largely been middle class and uh, unconcerned with that. Poor kids. 
So we're going to see what happens here. Um, I was reminded Friday that, that Christians, the church, has always, always been against abortion. From the very first and second century in a great book called Destroyer of the Gods, Larry Hurtado, Larry Hurtado chronicles the earliest writings and observations of non-Christians about Christians and the church. One of his statements in there is with regard to abortion and abandonment or infanticide, we come to a distinct parting of the ways between Christians and general Greco-Roman practice. This is from the first and second century church. The church, the true church, the people of God, the true people of God, with the Spirit of God living in them, guiding them in truth and love, have always stood opposed to the taking of vulnerable life, to the misuse and abuse and enslavement of lives. So as we rejoice, and we absolutely should, we need to put our hands to the plow as well and know that life and ministry after Roe v. Wade is going to be a different day for us. Uh, Just a couple of comments from a friend from undergrad that put out this week uh, some things to be mindful of. In this article, he said that uh, we need to work to value pregnant women no matter their story. No matter their story, God has chosen for whatever reason to create life in them through whatever circumstances they found themselves in. Those of you who've walked through infertility know uh, that we can make love as human beings, but we cannot make life. Life is up to God. Two, support domestic fostering and adoption. Domestic fostering and adoption. Support domestic foster families and adoptive families. Support the agencies that are doing this work. Lean in, bring not only resources, but the gospel there. Three, support local pregnancy centers, which we already do both in Marietta and in Paulding, but we need to do more, and we're going to be talking about that in weeks and months to come. Four, support financial assistance for pregnant women in need, for pregnant women in need. And five, advocate for legislation. He nor I know exactly what that will flesh out to be, uh, but to know with all the advocacy centers and nonprofits and churches still coming alongside in states where uh, abortions are uh, extremely limited and rightly so, uh, we've got to advocate for legislation that helps provide resources in the wealthiest country in human history for those who find themselves in need. So, Um, I'll just throw that out there. I'm going to be sending out an article for you guys this week, but I I hope that you'll pray. I also hope you'll have an attitude of of generosity, grace, and humility in the days to come. Don't be be online picking fights or or shoving uh, a perceived victory in other people's faces. Let's Let's just glorify Christ. Let's honor and worship God. Let's lead with love. All right. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. How's that for a transition? Just Acts chapter 10. Um, before we get into the verses that we're going to read, and we'll read verses 34 through 48, I want to set up this encounter between the Apostle Peter and a man named Cornelius. A man named Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile, he was not a Jew. Uh, he was a Roman centurion, an Italian. But the scripture tells us he was a God-fearing and righteous 
man, as was his family. What that means was that he had lived in and among the Jews and had come to respect and worship the God of the Jews to the best of his ability. And it's interesting how Luke fleshes out what it means to be righteous and God-fearing among other things. You can go back and uh, read this later. I'll encourage you to do it. But Luke says part of what that means primarily is that he gave generously and he prayed regularly. I wonder if people looked at your giving and your prayer life and used Luke's standard if you would show yourself to be righteous, God-fearing, Christ-centered people. He gave generously. He prayed prayed regularly. In so doing, in softening his heart and his mind to follow God to the ability uh, that he could as a Gentile, he positioned himself to receive God's revelation, and God does not fail. He shows up to Cornelius, and he tells him to send for a man named Peter who's going to talk to him. Cornelius does that at the same time that God is preparing Cornelius for this uh, divine encounter. Paul goes up on a roof where he is, and he's, he's hungry, and he's praying, and he falls into uh, a trance. And he, he, since he's already hungry, God uses food to talk to him. He brings down this sheet like he's preparing a picnic, and on it are all kinds of tasty animals uh, that a kosher Jew would not eat, and some had broken those rules, obviously, like we do today in following Christ, and they largely ate what they wanted. But Peter says, no way. I've never touched any of this food, and I won't touch it now. And God enlightens him. He says, hey, hey, Peter, don't call unclean or common what I have made clean. And he does this three times, which would have been a little process that Peter would have been used to in his life. Would have brought to mind some failure and some restoration, saying, hey, this is how God has to deal with me. Any of you in Peter's club? I am. Like, I need it once, twice, thrice. He says, hey, go, go to this place, look for this man. You're going to have an encounter with him. And God is using food and that part of the Jewish law in Peter's vision to prepare Peter to think differently about human beings before God in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, let's pick up this story, verses 34 through 48. I'll read straight through these verses and pray for us. And we're going to look at um, Peter's main points in his message and how they speak to us this morning. We'll pick up in verse 34 of Acts chapter 10. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You'll come to see that to fear God and to do what is right is to ultimately confess your sin before God, repent, believe in Jesus Christ, and be forgiven and restored to God. Verse 36, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ to his Lord, of all. Verse 37, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything we did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. 
But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Let's pray. Father God, through your gracious and illuminating spirit, will you open up your word to us this morning? God, I pray that in this room there would be people this morning that for the very first time do not just hear the general teaching of Scripture, the general proclamation of the gospel, but by and through your spirit they hear the individual personal call of Jesus Christ to repentance and faith. And their lives are changed forever. God, speak to us. Give comfort where it's needed. Give challenge where it's needed. God, convict where it's needed. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive. I ask confidently in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what's interesting is Peter starts here talking about what he has seen, talking about what he has seen. Look at, back at verse 34, if you would. He begins to speak. He opens his mouth literally and says that he realizes now that God shows no favoritism. It's taken all of this time for Peter to realize that. And this is not a trivial thing, church. I think all of us in here, I hope all of us in here would give at least lip service to this. That God shows no favoritism. But I tell you, as long as I've been in church, I often wonder if we really understand this because I, I look at who's tapped on the shoulder to lead in most churches. And it's not simply just people who were faithful and Christ-centered and righteous before God, but it's people who are successful, good business leaders. Affluent, they've done well for themselves. They're in management positions. Look at most churches. I wonder if we really realize that God shows no favoritism. God is not impressed with you or me based on our race, our ethnicity, our color, how much our bank account holds or how much it doesn't hold. There's no uh, reverse favoritism with God either. He doesn't favor the poor, more, the poor more, though he certainly unites himself and aligns himself with the poor and the hurting and the marginalized in a unique way. He says there's no favoritism. He accepts from every nation those who fear him, those who do what is right. 
And then verse 36 and 37, he prepares his listeners, even Cornelius and his family, the friends that have gathered, the other Gentiles that are present. And he says this, he says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. I wonder sometimes if the watching world would say that among the church, whatever else we are announcing and proclaiming and living, it is peace. That the gospel message, whatever else it is, is a message of peace. It's a message of peace. Through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, Lord of all, every country, every nation, every people, every race, some are resisting that and rebelling still. Some have acknowledged that and bowed their hearts and their heads to him. Part of what makes Christianity so different and so unique and I've shared this with you before, is all other major world religions are still centered where they started. Not so with Christianity. The center of the church in Christianity, the movement of God, started in the Mediterranean world, the Middle East and North Africa, where it stayed for centuries until it moved as the Spirit of God was on the move into Western Europe, where it stayed for centuries until the Spirit of God on the move moved over into North America, where it stayed for centuries. And then it moved on. We are not the center of what God is doing. It's moved on into the Southern Hemisphere, South and Central America, parts of Africa and Asia, where the church is exploding and the preaching of the gospel is powerful and is being met with receptive hearts and receptive minds. Because Jesus Christ is the Lord of all, of all creation, of all peoples, of all cultures. He says, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea? Beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. Now, I want to pause here because uh, Peter is about to jump into his message. And if you study the sermons of Peter in Acts, they typically have, we'll laugh at this, but they typically have three major points. There's three major points that Peter is making, and then he fleshes those out illustratively differently um, underneath each one. But his three major points here are very basic, but powerful. And I want to say a word before you kind of begin to check out to be like, I know this stuff. Uh, He talks about Jesus' life, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection. That's the content of his sermon, content of his, his talk, his proclamation here. With Cornelius. And I know sometimes we sit in here in church week after week and we think, oh man, I know the gospel. Can we, can you take us somewhere I'm less familiar with? But I will tell you, depth is not about going beyond the gospel. Depth is about going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel. It's about hearing the gospel again and again and again and again and again and again until you and I stop running to every other place and every other person to feel the brokenness in our own lives. Because we don't believe that we are who God says we are in Jesus Christ. We don't believe that we've been forgiven the way that God says we've been forgiven in Jesus Christ. We don't believe that the transformation and restoration that God says he holds out for our lives in Jesus Christ is true. So you and I don't need to move beyond the gospel. We need to move deeper into the gospel. So let's look at Peter's message this morning. The first thing Peter does is he tells us that Jesus' life 
Jesus' life gave witness to the truth of his message. Jesus' life gave witness to the truth of his message. Look at verse 37. He doesn't just say what he said in verse 36. You're familiar with our message. What he's saying is, Cornelius, where you live, where everyone lives in this area, there has been rumblings and talk of what has happened here. What has happened with this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as he was crucified, and now he can't be found. And his followers are saying he was resurrected and has ascended to the right hand of the one true God. And they're causing quite a ruckus in Jerusalem, and it's beginning to spread out now. And then in verse 37, he says, you know what has happened. Let me remind you what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. We'll stop right there. We'll stop right there. Peter says Jesus went around, he went around healing people. You know what's amazing to me? Sometimes I'll, I'll hear people say, I would have an easier time believing biblical Christianity if it weren't for the, the miracles in the New Testament. I say, are you kidding me? I would have a hard time believing it. If the God of the entire universe, the author of the single great play in which we're all engaged, wrote himself into the script and came down into the play and nothing remarkable happened. No miracles happened as God walked the earth and encountered the brokenness that we live in. But I, I want you to bring yourself back because Galilee, Galilee, Luke mentions in verse 37, he said, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, and he starts talking about Jesus' life. Galilee has a special place in the writing and the thinking of Luke. And I want to remind you in Luke chapter 4 of the scene when Jesus comes into the synagogue. And as a young Jewish male is given an opportunity to take a scroll, to choose a scroll, and to read a passage, uh, a passage and to maybe expound it a little bit. And here's why this matters. Galilee, Jesus was known there. Before we, we read what happens in Luke chapter 4, just remember that Jesus had grown up there. People had gone into his father's shop to get help. Jesus had run as a little boy and a teenager into other shops and other homes, getting things for Mary, running errands that Joseph had assigned to him, going and shopping. He had family and friends. They knew him. They knew his family. He was the carpenter's son. Mary's son. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, we see that Jesus returned after his time of testing in the, in the wilderness to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. You ever wonder what might happen if you left this place this morning and went back to your home in the power of the Spirit? How you might be a different spouse, different parent, different friend, what it might be like for you to get up and go to work this morning in the power of the Spirit, how your attitude might change, 
how the way in which you see your coworkers or your boss or your employees might change. Jesus goes back to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Now remember, this this space is filled with people who've known Jesus, many of them all of his life. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the slaves and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And sitting down, he's assuming the position of the teacher in a Jewish synagogue. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began his exposition by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He said, the one to whom the prophets spoke is me. The one to whom the prophets wrote and were pointing toward is me. The kingdom of God in me has come. The kingdom of God is in me and is near. The kingdom of God is in me in your very presence. The king of glory has stepped down into human time and space. This is why miracles in the New Testament should not surprise us. Should not surprise us. I want to tell you and challenge you that in your life and mine and in our life as a church, it is our life that gives witness to the truth of the message of the gospel. It is primarily our life together, not your life individually. Our life together that gives witness to the truth of the gospel that causes unbelievers in our age to look and to see. This must be true because look at the way they love one another. Look at the way they share their resources so generously. Look at the way they gather with such commitment and joy. Look at the way they forgive one another. Look at the way they look past small errors and slights that happen when human beings are in relationship to one another. Look at the way they live together. Theologians and biblical scholars are picking up on this and pointing this out in our post-Christian era. John Colwell said, The world has no access to the gospel story other than as it is narrated in the life, worship, and proclamation of the church. He's not saying they can't read it. He's saying it doesn't make sense and they can't see it be true except for the church. Through its service and being as witness, the church is a rendering of the gospel to the world. That's why it matters that we gather. That's why it matters that we share lives. That's why it matters that we forgive and we love. That's why it matters that we teach one another and we submit to one another. Leslie Newbegin, that great, great, great 20th century British missionary, and theologian said, how is it possible, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible, 
That people should come to believe, now listen to this, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross. This is a legitimate question to a nation that is as enamored with might and power as any nation ever has been in human history. Newbegin says, I am suggesting that the only answer, the only lens of interpretation for the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Who believe it and live by it. Brian Stone says, the most evangelistic thing the church can do today is be the church. To be formed imaginatively by the Holy Spirit through core practices such as worship, forgiveness, hospitality, and financial sharing into a distinctive people in the world. A new society, the body of Christ. This is why what we do up here matters. Our life together is God's gospel witness to the world watching. In small and simple ways like serving in Ellen Kids, giving your time there. It's sad to me, and I'm going to throw this out right now, that, that we struggle so deeply to find people to serve our children and our families. I don't know the disconnect there. I'll be honest, I'm wrestling with it. And can I just say to those of you of us who have kids, we may have to do this on our own here. We may have to rebuild this ministry on our own, aside from a few people who are willing to serve. We may have to say, if we've got kids in there, I mean, I'm used to four-fifths of my families over there serving almost every week. I'm up here and the twins are there doing whatever they're doing. But we're barely hanging on right now. There are Sundays where we can barely offer children's ministry. That is a shame on us as a church. And you may be saying, hey man, you're making me feel guilty. I don't care. You ought to feel guilty. Because they are the least of these among us. They need us. And most of us prefer to sit in here Sunday after Sunday and say, we don't give a darn what happens back there. We'll say, hey, Jules, if you need us, let me know. That's not serving. It's saying, put me in, coach. It's going to be inconvenient, inconvenient, but I'll do it. I don't have to do it every Sunday. Right? It's Ron Huntoon. I come walking out here Friday, and it's hot and unpleasant, especially when the hall doors are open, and he's up here touching up paint and painting. Do you think Ron could have come up with something better to do that day? The touch-up paint at the church? I imagine so. It's gathering in home groups week in and week out. How many of you are in a summer home group right now? Could you raise your hand? Let me see. Yeah, look at that. We had 113 adults in home groups this week. 113 adults. That is a witness to the watching world when all those cars are stacking up week in and week out, and you guys are centering yourselves relationally around the Word of God, that there's something different in your life. That there's a commitment that matters to you. That we're a different kind of people, a different kind of society. I could go on and on and on with this. By the way, today is today's the last day to sign up for home groups. So if you want to jump in one, you've got today. Go online, go to the app, whatever, so on and so forth. Um, our life together matters. It gives witness to the truth of our message, just as Jesus' life did. And then Peter goes on, and he tells us that Jesus' death Jesus' death was a sacrificial atonement for our sin. 
Jesus' death was a sacrificial atonement for our sin. Look here, if you will, at the, at the second half of verse 39. As Peter's making his argument here in verse 39, he says, We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. The word literally there is a, a tree. And, and Peter says, we're witnesses of this. He says, we, we are not inventors of a new religion. We're not promoters of a, a Greco-Roman philosophy. We are witnesses of history. We are witnesses of history. We saw this happen. And when he says they hung him on a cross, on a tree, literally, Peter's reaching back, and at least his, his Jewish hearers are making some connections. Deuteronomy 21 says that anyone who hangs on a tree, or a pole, your translation may say, is cursed by God, is under the curse of God. And those listening to Peter, they had walked those roads all their life. They'd gone by person after person after person after person hanging on a cross who'd been crucified, bodies left there usually to rot and be eaten by vultures. And they had walked by them for years saying, man, there hangs a person who is cursed by God. Because cursed by God is everyone who hangs on a tree. And now, now they have to think, but Jesus, this perfect man, crucified in this most humiliating of deaths? Cursed by God? Yes. Yes, bewildering to thoughtful people. It would go on to form Peter's theology. So then in 1 Peter 2.24, he would write this. He himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By his wounds, you have been healed. The word here for cross literally again is tree, and he ties the message in 1 Peter 2, at least in the minds of his Jewish hearers, to the early books of the Old Testament, places like I mentioned in Deuteronomy 21, and likely to passages like Isaiah 53.5. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he, pointing toward the coming Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. So that informed minds would make the connection and marvel at it, and maybe ask how it could possibly be that the curse of God could fall on the Son of God. And the answer is that Jesus was bearing in the place of sinners the curse and judgment of God that must be executed on sin, must be executed for sin. Now, we understand this basic premise, right? That when there's an offense or debt, it must be settled. Someone must pay the cost, whatever and however that must be done. I heard Alistair Begg give an interesting um, illustration to this. He said some years back he was visiting in Scotland and got a rental car. And it was a, a French car. Didn't operate right. Imagine that. 
Um, he said it was like a, a blended transmission, not quite fully automatic, but not quite fully standard. He said, I could never figure out whether I was in gear or not, and I drove it for a week. He said he pulled into a friend's house in Scotland whose driveway was on a slight incline. You can imagine where I'm going with this. He pulled in. Beg said he, he got out and shut the door, and right as he shut the door, the car began to roll. He turned and he looked, and to his horror, it rolled right into the garage door, past the garage door, demolishing it and part of an interior wall. He said, now, I had chosen not to get insurance, and my insurance didn't cover me overseas. Um, so he said, I, I had just incurred a debt. I had created an offense to my horror by letting my car roll right into my friend's house. And he said, so we were either going to have to share this debt, I was going to have to pay it, or something was going to happen, have to happen, right? Because the debt is there. The offense is there. He said, but my friend and his grace and his mercy paid it all. He said, it's a, a simple picture, almost so simple it's embarrassing to say. But we know what it is to have someone pay a debt for us. Let us off for an offense that we should not have been let off for. And Peter's making this connection here with Jesus' death as a sacrificial atonement. He's saying the penalty, the death that owed for the offense of sin, of rebellion against God is death. You rebel against the king of the universe, your own creator, and the debt is death. And that debt must be paid. The debt is owed, period. It would be unjust for God to simply dismiss it. And we're under the judgment of God, every single one of us. The only way to get out from under that judgment is to accept what God has done for us. What God has done on our behalf in Jesus. As he takes my place, as he takes your place, as he bears my sin and he bears your sin on the cross and takes on himself the judgment of God for your sins and mine. Last, Peter talks about Jesus' resurrection. And he tells us that Jesus' resurrection was God's demonstration. Jesus' resurrection was God's demonstration of new life, a new creation. Remember the Jews were, they were looking for God to come and to make the whole world right. To redeem a creation that's groaning underneath the weight of the sin of human beings. It's not just about saving individuals, it's about saving individuals so that we can become part of the people of God and be participants in his program and his system of making all things right as we bear his image. Look at what Peter says, we'll start with verse 39 again. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Christ holds the keys to all power and all authority. 
All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. If you keep reading, you realize that the Holy Spirit doesn't wait for for Peter to give a a kind of 19th century um, altar call or or invitation. No hymns are sung. The Holy Spirit just comes into the hearts and the minds of the people listening and saves them. And saves them. I want to ask you, If you understand what believing in Jesus is and is not, in the New Testament, it is not simply mental assent like saying you believe in gravity or equal MC squared or that the sky is blue when it's sunny. What I want to ask you this morning right now as we draw this down personally is do you believe in Jesus and all of your hope is found in him? All of your hope is found in him. All of your life is found in him. Your personal ethics and worldview are shaped by him. Your relationships, your finances, your commitments are driven by love for him and the gospel. Do you believe in Jesus in a way that allows you to be at peace with the fact that one day you're going to be laid in a casket or dumped in an urn. There's going to be some flowers around and people are going to be there to mourn you for just a few minutes and then you're going into the ground. Do you believe in Jesus in a way that helps you make sense of your life in this world and holds out the promise and hope for your life with him in eternity? Do you believe in him in a way that makes it impossible not to love other believers? Impossible not to long enthusiastically together with them in worship and community as we're doing right now, as you guys are doing in home groups throughout the week. And to not talk about Jesus with those who don't know him. That's what the New Testament means by believing in Jesus. Casting yourself on him. That's what Peter means here when he says that anyone, regardless of race or financial status or background or sin or what you've done or what's been done to you, anyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of their sins through his name. The judgment of God will come on all who, who live in rejection of Jesus. And the judgment of God that comes will be absolutely fair and absolutely final. And we can't know this, this truth, this truth of our own state before God without his initiative. We need God's revelation, just like he came to Peter, just like he came to Cornelius. We need God's grace to even understand that we don't believe and we don't see. May God have that grace on you this morning if that's where you are. And then we need God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit that we might see, that we might see that our estrangement from God, our separation from God, is what leaves us feeling so alone, so inadequate, so deeply unsatisfied that we try to fill it with everything else, with stuff and sex and relationships and success and tribal affiliations. Many people and many of you in this room right now or those of you watching online, are trying to fill this aching void in your soul with the pursuits of this world, and it simply isn't working. And I'll just tell you, it can't. It can't. You can't fill an infinite void with that which is finite. You can't do it. Um, C.S. Lewis, many of you are familiar with when he 
was a relatively unknown professor at Oxford in the dark days of World War II. He was asked by the director of religious affairs at the BBC, the British uh, Broadcasting Corporation, to give a series of lectures to the people of the United Kingdom. On the radio, Lewis agreed to do that immediately, 42 years old at the time, and gave a series of 15-minute lectures on the radio through the BBC, 25 lectures in all, several different series ranging from 1941 all the way through 1944. Those uh, lectures were collected not long after, edited together, so that what was spoken could be read as what was written. And they became the book that we know now of C.S. Lewis's called Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity. It's not a long book, just slightly over 200 pages. Typical size of smaller books. But it is a profound book. There's a link in your app to it. I encourage you to read it if you haven't. It sold over three and a half million copies. In Mere Christianity, Lewis says this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most plausible explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made for a world that is not as this world is with its brokenness and sin. St. Augustine of Hippo in North Africa, centuries before Lewis lived, in his book Confessions that chronicles um, his life and his coming to faith in Jesus Christ, wrote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Some of you have restless hearts this morning. Some of you have an infinite ache in your soul because you have never, you've never heard the specific call of God to salvation in your life. Oh, you're familiar, as Cornelius was, with God, with all things God. You're familiar with the message. You've heard it generally for years, maybe for decades. But my prayer is that this morning you'll hear it for the first time and you'll respond. Let me ask you to stand. In just a minute, the band's going uh, to lead us. We're going to sing in response. Uh, we invite any of you who are believers, followers of Jesus Christ to step out at any time that we're singing to receive communion in the front or the back, take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, move all to the side, spend some time in prayer and receive communion. As you remember through that sacrament, Jesus' life, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection. As you look forward to the return of Jesus, and eternity with him. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.